0: Hello and welcome to EMS in the Motor City. On this DemCast, you'll hear from amazing EMS physicians and some of the best EMS providers from in and around the city that moves the world. So grab a seat, buckle in, and away we go. Welcome back to DemCast Studios. We're here to talk our part two for cardiac arrest. I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Matt Ball, who is EMS Physician at Henry Ford Hospital and also responsible for our intro and outro music. (laughs) Good morning, Dr. Ball. Good morning. Damon Gorlick joins us again from Demka Executive Director. Good morning.
1: Good morning to everyone.
0: We have Dr. Ryan Reese, our EMS fellow here as well. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. And as always, I'm also joined by Dr. Rob Dunn, Demka Medical Director. Hi, Rob.
2: Hey, how's it going, everybody?
0: Great. So we've been busy as a Demka team since we last talked about cardiac arrest episode one. Damon did some CPR instruction at a local church with Channel 4 in mid-February of this year. And then Channel 4 did a live-action drill on the air with the Damon and Ryan and I were were there. Then the next morning, we spent some time talking with Channel 4 anchors about CPR and AED and uh, community response to a cardiac arrest. Those uh, files are all on the Demka website. That's demka.org and absolutely worth taking a look at. The other thing we've been up to is doing some Stop the Bleed training at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, which has been another passion project for our EMS team but before we talk any and more about and we're going to
2: have some stop the bleed related videos on our website as well.
0: which will be another fantastic resource for both the community and our EMS providers to make sure we get the tourniquet in the right place and place it correctly. But uh, let's dive right in to the topic at hand today, which is cardiac arrest care. It's worth a listen uh, if you haven't taken a look at episode one, which focuses on BLS care. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about advanced cardiac arrest care and ALS care, typically, uh, particularly medications, uh, drugs used in cardiac arrest, some of the newer emerging technologies, including heads-up CPR, mechanical CPR devices like the Lucas device, uh, double sequential defibrillation and some in-hospital special topics like ECMO.
2: All right, so we just want to remind everybody that the point we've been making is that surviving cardiac arrest is something that happens based on what is going on in the field. This is won or lost at the scene and it that BLS care that we emphasized last time is just so important. Of course. We have advanced life support there's been a huge focus on advanced life support over the decades but the reason we're still talking a lot about advanced life support is because it's a small benefit that the various interventions have and we still know that that early defibrillation and cpr is the number one thing that's going to lead to survival. So we want to talk a little bit about drugs. We want to talk about everybody's favorite drug first, um, which I'll talk about for a minute, which is epinephrine. The interesting thing for everyone to know about ACLS drugs is that we use them based on a lot of theoretical data and not on clinical trials. So in the early days of cardiac arrest research, which is really going back a century. People use things that seem to work in laboratory settings or animal settings and they started applying them to humans without necessarily studying the way we would study a new drug now, right? Nowadays, we do big trials before a drug gets used. That is not what was happening. So we're always stuck kind of going backwards and people have been going backwards looking at epinephrine for a long time and we'll put some materials on the website with some summaries of some of the studies that are out there and people had a hard time teasing out where the real benefit is right we know that if we you know if you take and you kill a frog and you pull the heart out and you put it on a little stand in the lab and you squirt epinephrine on it, the heart will start beating guess what though the frog is still dead right the frog does not have a good outcome from that so the idea that epinephrine can have this effect is something we understand i think many of us have seen this we've probably all seen it um but one of the things was does it really help the outcome so people started looking at that uh in the 90s and early 2000s and you know again going backwards they looked backwards at 417,000 patients in in japan and that what they said is that when they looked at this when they were comparing bls and als areas that the use of epinephrine and cardiac arrest Increased your chance of getting a heartbeat, but did not increase survival with good neurologic outcomes. Again, not randomized, not done ahead of time. People looked at the timing and said, well, maybe epinephrine is something that in a certain time period is beneficial. This is something that animal research and research on humans who have in-hospital cardiac arrest has showed is that you know somewhere after the two-minute mark, the two-to-six-minute mark, epinephrine may have a real benefit. I just never know what exactly they're what time they're at when I'm seeing them in a pre-hospital cardiac arrest with bystander CPR, right? We just don't know that. So someone decided we really needed to look and do a randomized controlled trial of, ep- of epinephrine. So this took a long time to happen. And the paramedic two trial, which is probably old news now, but many of you have heard of it, was a multi-center trial using epinephrine every three to five minutes. And it showed an increased chance of getting spontaneous circulation, but more long ICU stays and more severe neurologic disabilities. And their conclusion was that routine epinephrine should no longer be part of the standard arrest protocols, Uh, but it should be something that's looked at at a case by case basis, like some of the other drugs that are out there. And and this is kind of going through the process right now what you're seeing in a lot of systems is limiting the no- the number of doses of epinephrine and you know we looked at, at epinephrine use in our system and you know we found that generally in our group of survivors they got three or fewer doses of epinephrine. Is that right, Damon?
1: Correct. A- anyone who really received anything more than three doses the likelihood of them being discharged with good, neurolog- good neurological outcomes was very small.
2: Yeah, so that's something that you know we're continuing to monitor. The other thing to remember that we've been talking about for a number of years here in Demka is. You know, that three to five minute window is some serious waffling on the part of the uh, ill core and the people that make the guidelines, because that's a difference of 66 percent of a dose, right? There's no other drug that we say, well, you can give this or you can give 66 percent more. So we've been emphasizing in training and many of you have gone to some of the trainings we've done to give epinephrine at five minutes. Uh, and, and we're talking about as protocols evolve about limiting total doses as many other uh, EMS yeah, systems around the country do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so. Our our current protocol still supports using epinephrine. Five minutes is a is a great kind of easy time mark. Um, you know, in the hospital, my practice is is to limit epidoses to two, especially after the the paramedic two trial came out that gives some strong uh, strong evidence to support that that practice. I mean, in in my opinion, there are there are fates worse than death. And you know, cardiac arrest, resuscitation with somebody with like a devastated neurologic outcome is you know something I wouldn't want for my family member or my patient. and, I, you know, I think being cognizant of the number of doses of epinephrine we're going to push. Is, uh, is great, like the best care that we can we can provide.
2: Yeah, so let's dive into some other, talk about some of the other drugs out there that have evolved over the years.
1: The other two are calcium chloride and sodium bicarb. And we do look at every month, we look at every case, cardiac arrest case, and what medications were used. And when it comes to calcium chloride and sodium bicarb, there's just specific incidences of when each should use those. Uh, you know, diabetics, kidney failure, and stuff like that. And that's why we really look at the documentation to see if it matches up. We'll even look at patient history to see if there's a history of kidney disease or anything like that. When we don't see that and we can't find the narrative, we really question as to why the drugs were used. Is this just an old habit, old-school way of thinking? Because they don't provide the benefit that people feel that they are going to, that people do not need those medications.
3: And some people's perspective is, why not just give it? It's calcium, it's bicarbonate. You know, that's, uh, that's like drinking a glass of milk and taking an Alka-Seltzer and those things are over the counter. Uh, and, you know, in a desperate situation, why, why not throw the kitchen sink and do the best that you can for your patient? But when you look at the research that's been done on indiscriminately giving calcium and bicarbon cardiac arrests, what you find is that there's either no benefit or there's actually harm in indiscriminate. Giving those, so if there's a reason to give calcium, as Damon pointed out, you know you think that they might be hyperkalemic, for example, because you know that they're a dialysis patient, or you did a great exam and you saw a dialysis catheter. Then you know if there's a reason, uh, please feel free and document it, but don't don't feel that that is something that should be given uh, at some point in every cardiac arrest.
2: Yeah, great point, and uh, you know, but go ahead and look for that. It's not like we don't have. Patients that have missed dialysis or patients that have, um, you know, poorly recognized renal insufficiency or on meds that are bringing up their their uh, potassium. So,
3: yeah, basically, if there's a reason to do it, do it. And if there's no reason to do it, don't do it.
2: And there's at least one person in our in our data who has had two hyperkalemic cardiac arrests and was successfully resuscitated from both. Um, It was someone who had missed dialysis a few times.
4: So another aspect of cardiac arrest care is checking is potentially asking about or checking glucose and our recommendation is you need to stop stop asking about glucose. This has been out of the H's and T's for over a decade now and there is really no benefit in checking the glucose because it will be low in a cardiac arrest patient. You would hope that they have used up all of their glucose and the blood in the tip of their finger is probably not going to be a best accurate uh, best way to measure their actual glucose. Um, And really giving them glucose is not going to change their outcomes. And it
2: might make it worse. One of the things we've learned about glucose right, it's quite hypertonic. And, you know, if you give it to someone with an acute stroke or you give it to someone with an acute MI it increases infarct size in studies of of cardiac arrest. Giving glucose during the cardiac arrest does not seem to be associated with any benefit and may be harmful. The other thing to remember is that hypoglycemia is not a cause of cardiac arrest, right? We've all seen patients who are hypoglycemic hours, maybe even a day, right? They they have significant encephalopathy when you get them back, but it didn't stop their heart. Your heart keeps working on other things. Um, but this is something that's kind of out there, right, Matt? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you know, back in uh, I, I guess the honey bear days of uh, EMS, people would talk about the coma cocktail. You know, if someone's unconscious, give them sugar, give them Narcan, give them bicarb. And we've talked about the issues with indiscriminately given giving bicarb, and obviously some harm with glucose as well. And you know, if you think about someone in cardiac arrest, you're breathing for them, your heart's pumping for them. Narcan's not really going to help. It stops you from breathing, but if that's happening externally, it's not like that's going to contribute. And In general, uh, I I think the idea of a coma cocktail is also sort of underscored by the idea of what harm can it do. It might help, but, you know, in a cardiac arrest, anything that you do takes attention away from providing high-quality chest compressions and uh, providing things that we know are evidence-based. So, you know, even if something won't explicitly cause harm, if it doesn't cause any benefit, it needs to go out the window.
2: Yeah, right. You want to put some thought into it, right? That's, I think, the point that we're trying to make is you really want to individualize that cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. care where you're doing good CPR, but you're doing that exam. Like you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. you're looking for for signs of uh, other things that are going on. Make sure you didn't miss a trauma, right? We've all seen that happen as well. So I think that's really
3: important. Right. So think about it. Don't just empty the med pack.
0: Speaking of some additional medications, drugs that we use for cardiac arrest, amio uh, and lidocaine are, are ones that we've been in the past um, pretty hot on. There's a New England Journal of Medicine article from 2016 that randomized patients to receive lidocaine, amiodarone, or placebo in patients with VFib or unstable VTAC, and the finding from this was that there was like equivalency, so there's no substantial benefit from using one of those over the other. So remember that's amio, lidocaine, or placebo, which calls into question the efficacy and the utility of lidocaine or amiodarone in our patients with with cardiac arrest. The other medication... Let me just
2: say while we're talking about that, remember, this is talking about patients that are getting CPR unstable. We know these medications work really well in patients with stable VTAC, you know, someone's got sustained VTAC, you know, these antiarrhythmics actually work pretty well for that. But it turns out once you arrest, you know, until you get that person restabilized when those medications again may be helpful, you know, they really don't have a lot of benefit. And if we look back at why they were being put in there, they're kind of being put in there to stabilize a patient, you know, so you're successfully shocking them and you're getting them back and you're trying to prevent them from going back into a dysrhythmia. So, you know, don't expect them to do a lot when their patient's actually arrested.
0: Yeah, you, you make a good point. A lot of this discussion sounds like maybe we're, we're hating on some of these medications, including like epi and glucose. I mean, they have they have roles and fantastic utility in, in parts of the medical care. We're, we're talking specifically for patients already in cardiac arrest. Uh, the other medication we haven't mentioned yet is magnesium. Really no benefit here uh, with the exception of those small portion of patients who are in torsades so you, like likely your you know uh, underlying alcoholic patient who may be hypomagnesemic and going into torsades that magnesium can be life-saving this is another plug for please don't just empty the drug box just because they are continuing to be in cardiac arrest is not an indication to give more medications
4: Okay, we talked about some medications in cardiac arrest care, but how are we going to get the medications into the patient? Mm -hmm. And really the two main methods is intravenously or via an I.O. route. And uh, we've looked at the difference between IV access and, and uh, tibial uh, IO access. And actually uh, having a, a, a pre-tibial uh, IO was an independent factor for the patient not doing as well. So if you're going to get an IO, we would recommend a uh, proximal humerus IO
2: or an IV. And what about really trying for the IV, right?
4: Yeah, just go for the IV.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, work on your IV skills. It's a it's a good opportunity, and really, really look for that I, IV. What you know, <clears throat> are you guys seeing a lot of people with uh, EJs these days? It seems like it's a bit of a lost art.
3: Uh, we 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 still see it occasionally, though. That that is kind of turning into a lost art. It tells you how old the medic was, maybe.
0: You know, that's a, that's a pretty fun skill for EMS. I, I mean, I used to love putting them in. The last one I saw was actually on just a young lady who was intoxicated, but this is a, a great potential case to, to pop in an EJ. All
4: right, so we're going to talk about some special topics in cardiac arrest care, and the first one is PEA, or pulseless electrical activity. And the main thing that we want to drive home is that PEA is not a rhythm. You should be looking at the the monitor and asking yourself, is this a rhythm that is potentially perfusing, right? Is it a narrow complex? Is it a wide complex? Is there some, is there some other pathology going on? Is this V-fib, v but, but PEA is not a rhythm.
3: And it, it, it doesn't look like sinus tack at 120 versus a, versus a weird looking wide complex. A spiky thing happened 30, 30 times a minute, you know, and. You know, when, when you think about pulseless electrical activity, right, it all relies on your ability to feel a pulse. And it's, it's impossible to feel a central pulse below a systolic of about 40 and a peripheral pulse below a systolic of about 60. So there's a lot of real estate where the heart could legitimately be pumping blood without you feeling a pulse.
2: Right. So if it really looks like a perfusing rhythm, give the patient the benefit of the doubt, right? I mean, I think that's a real key message because we know when we you know you see people in the hospital when you bring them in we put an ultrasound machine on them we look at their look for their heart beating there are EMS agencies that are doing this as well for this assessment and we find that some people just have a pulse you can't feel the other thing just uh talk about what what Dr. Ball was just saying is that the provider's ability to feel a pulse doctors, paramedics, nurses, is actually pretty terrible. They've mm-hmm. studied this in the operating room where they had fresh cadavers and and they had people with, with a pulse who were just anesthetized. And there are people with a pulse that, you know, very inconsistently was it recognized.
3: Absolutely, and not, not picking on uh, pre-hospital folks either. Doctors across the board very bad and worse than they think.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, not to pick on pre-hospital providers <laughs> at all. I mean, if anything, our whole message is that the pre-hospital care of cardiac arrests is often more consistent than what we're seeing in the hospital. Absolutely, right.
3: Rapid fire, special topic number two, Narcan. We talked about it a little bit before, uh, but if you think an arrest is caused by an opioid overdose, don't overthink it. A cardiac arrest is a cardiac arrest. Uh, giving Narcan will not cause their heart to start all over again. Uh, so uh, don't don't think about, um, Pseudo arrests. There, there's the same incidence of uh, PA as all caused with opioid overdose. Uh, just treat it like your garden variety uh, cardiac arrest, and don't don't waste time that you could be uh, spending on something more worthwhile. Giving them Narcan, please.
0: Right, Nar- Narcan will reverse some of the opiate effects on respiratory depression, but it is not a resuscitation drug. It has no like implicit cardiac. Uh, benefit. So use your epinephrine for cardiac arrest if it's indicated here, which will also provide you know those reversal of respiratory uh, suppression and utilizing good airway control here will, Will uh, eliminate any issues with a, a potential opiate based cardiac arrest. Um, you know, once the patient has been resuscitated, but potentially a dose of Narcan could help them to stop bon- to spontaneously breathe, which may then take the work off the EMS team of continuing to beg. But that's probably the the only situation in which naloxone is uh, useful in a cardiac arrest or a ROSC patient. Right,
3: absolutely. And, y- you know, they can have as many opioids on board provided you are breathing for them. And in fact, in the hospital, one of the medications that we use to sedate intubated and ventilated patients is fentanyl uh, because, you know, again, if you're breathing for them, the respiratory drive is irrelevant.
2: And remember, before we started having Narcan out there with BLS providers and medical first responders, we did not have uh, any different death rate from opioid overdoses that were viable on arrival. They just needed to be ventilated for longer, right? And think of all the other drugs that are out there that we don't have a reversal agent for. Someone might be on the ventilator for a day or more from some of these things. So, you know, good ventilation is, I think, one of the take-homes about opioids in in cardiac arrest because, you know, we're not as excited or worried for that person who had a sudden collapse of, of V-fib that we have to start worrying about their airway and ventilation as much. But if you really think it was an opioid and, and that was something you information you have from the scene, attention to ventilation is important because many of these patients had been hypoventilated for a while and got hypoxic. And they're a patient that hypoxia may be a primary problem. So that you should use the information you have from the scene, but you should use it to do a little bit better ventilation.
0: So, other special topics in uh, cardiac arrest care include our 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 widgets, our electronic devices. Toys. Yeah, we our, like our I toys. Yeah, our toys. Uh, so, the one of the big players here is a mechanical CPR device. A trade name, Lucas, is what many people are familiar with. Um, you know, this is different than the thumpers from years ago. Those thumpers were, like, research has shown, it is more likely to cause harm than benefit, and uh, possibility of intrathoracic and intraabdominal organ damage. Um, the Velocus devices are are pretty different. They they seem to be much safer. Um, there's also good indication that like utilizing a mechanical CPR device. Gives us better, more consistent CPR, limited interruption in CPR. Which from our first podcast, we harped on this quite a bit of limiting interruption, high quality CPR. The mechanical CPR devices do this, and they allow us to, you know, use that device to take the place of a provider, so that that person can be doing uh, leading the arrest and making some, you know, more high level brain decisions than just doing. De- the mechanical CPR of uh, of the resuscitation.
2: There are some caveats with mechanical CPR. One thing that we know is that mechanical CPR devices, when they're studied, aren't any better than good quality manual CPR, but good quality manual CPR can sometimes be hard to come by for the reasons that Dr. Brennan was just talking about in terms of fatigue, number of providers. But a mechanical CPR device can also provide poor CPR if it's not put on correctly. So you really have to rehearse mm-hmm. the use of these devices. So it gets put on correctly and it does not delay yeah, kind CPR.
4: Of yeah. How so, long does it take to put it on? How long does it take to get the plunger uh, actually pumping the chest? I mean, you, you really need to rehearse it and this requires... Um, some significant training when you when you take a mechan- when you have a mechanical CPR device as a part of your resuscitation.
2: And some places have seen a decrease in survival when they moved to mechanical CPR, and they traced that to additional pauses in CPR that otherwise wouldn't occur. So yeah. the other thing to remember, if you're using a mechanical CPR device, that device is going to stay on until a decision is made, the patient's either either got some sustained ROSC, they're going to uh, for, you know, a procedure or their, um, you know, or their, their resuscitation has been terminated. Uh, so, you know, there shouldn't be a switch out at the hospital or anything else. So these programs need to be carefully coordinated so you can continue that mechanical CPR without stoppage. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot more going on in this. I think there's newer and better devices all the time.
0: The other kind of hot topic in in CPR developing over probably the last decade or so with research is what's called heads up CPR, and this is where the the patient's um, the head of the patient is elevated, and this you have to use a mechanical CPR device to get the right proper positioning for CPR in these patients. Also requires the use of a, a, imped- a threshold impedance device on the airway to be able to uh, make sure that we get the appropriate negative intrathoracic pressure on these patients. The The research in the animal studies is, is pretty... Uh, Stellar as far as like good neurologic outcome for these kind of cases It's not prime time here as of yet, but something to to consider that might be coming down the road for our cardiac arrest patients
2: Yeah, and we'll put on uh, on our website some of the research there was a recent uh, a recent paper Looking at systems that use it compared to some historical controls, obviously not as strong as a randomized controlled trial, um, but really looks to be a very successful device as part of a bundle of care in some systems for sure.
0: The last of the, the CPR toys and devices we're going to talk about is the concept of double sequential defibrillation, which has also been in the literature and kind of on the radar for quite some time. And this is the, the concept of using two uh, monitors and two sets of defibrillator pads on a patient who is in refractory VFib. You have one set of pads placed AP and the other set placed anterior in the standard, uh, standard fashion. And you defibrillate with one monitor and and then maybe like a second or so later defibrillate with a second, so it's double sequential defibrillation. And uh, there's been a, a recent New England Journal of Medicine a, a research article on this that looked at um, the outcomes initially the research was confusing as to whether it was the the vector change so the change in pad placement with the defibrillation or actually the double sequential defibrillation that had the benefit this most recent paper seems strongly to indicate that double sequential defibrillation is actually the thing that helps increase rate of survival with good, good neurologic outcomes seen in double sequential defibrillation uh, dr Ball you want to talk a little bit about like what you know what does that look like like in the, the pre-hospital field, how do we potentially do that?
3: Right. So first of all, of course, when you're doing double sequential defibrillation, you have to have the equipment to uh, defibrillate two times, of course. So that would mean that you need uh, two life packs or whatever device that you use. Um, so with refractory, with refractory, uh, refractory v you would, uh, they're essentially the There's the conventional position that you put pads in as well as the AP position. You would put both sets on at the same time and then uh, then defibrillate in, in sequence essentially one machine and then the other machine.
0: Which is going to be tough for most of our pre-hospital providers because we don't typically have two units on scene with two ALS devices. In theory, you could do this with an AED if you have the AED and it de- it detects a shockable rhythm, then you would have the AED shock and the um, ALS monitor would you would manually shock right behind that is a is an option. The other thing would potentially be calling a second unit on scene for a second defibrillator if you know if it looks like this is kind of like the optimal patient for this. This um study indicates that probably after maybe two or three shocks without successful termination of a refractory VFib is when double sequential defibrillation may be your your go-to option here again we have some good evidence that this is um, a a tool that we can increase good neurologic outcome but still a lot more to to learn on on this for us
3: yeah this study is really hot off the presses and you know if you're in a common position and the demka area where you just have one device available vector change might also be something worthwhile to try because if you think about it the two things that determine where those pads actually are are your body shape and what size your heart is and what way it's pointing and you know if you have heart failure or a number of other disease processes your heart might be pointing in some goofy direction uh compared to what what we think about as the normal and then you know if you think about your skin surface the chest wall are you barrel chested pigeon chested um, is there some adiposity there? You know, people come in all different shapes and sizes, so it may be that your defibrillation isn't working because the vector or the direction in which the electrical charge, uh, is going doesn't really line up with the direction of the heart. So, you know, I, and like, like Dr. Brennan said, this, this study's, uh, uh hot off the presses. It's very recent. It's a, it's an area where, uh, our understanding is evolving, but, uh. Uh, If if you're unable to do double uh, sequential uh, defibrillation, then uh, vector change might be something to think about
2: yeah and i think that's a good that's a good point is again think about what's going on right why why are things happening try and individualize that approach and that really brings us to our last topic which is about that smooth handoff because all of these things that have gone on right you've made some real efforts to get the patient uh to get the patient better maybe you've shocked the patient and they've had some brief return of spontaneous circulation and you've got that recurrent uh, ventricular fibrillation that refractory v-fib This is all information, you know, you want to tell that story to the hospital and give that smooth handoff for the patients that have significant viability or have achieved return of spontaneous circulation. So there's some key messages, right? You want to make sure you're telling the hospital what happened, when it happened, was there bystander CPR, make sure we're using terms that everybody understands. This term downtime gets thrown around. We talked about it on the last podcast, but I don't think we can emphasize it enough. Downtime is the time that a patient was in arrest and not getting CPR, right? So... When, that, when we're talking about that, hopefully that's a really small amount of time. The longer that is that you're not getting CPR, the less likely you are to survive. So someone who collapsed, it was witnessed, they got bystander CPR, maybe they got a bystander defibrillation, they had very little downtime, right? This is a patient that we're trying to do a lot for, and maybe it's that patient that's in that refractory Vfib and things like that. So you want to tell them about that so maybe they're ready to do a double sequential defibrillation i've had a couple patients in the hospital in the last couple months that have presented exactly like this tell them what you did tell them the rhythm summary ask how uh you know if if you can um, download your monitor make sure the hospital knows how to look at it so they can look at the various vectors and things that are in play Talk about families, witnesses, who's coming to the hospital, get a contact info if no one's coming because, you know, these are critically ill patients and we need to have some discussions with the family as well. And if you have extra people on scene, you can assign them to get information while you're working the arrest. What else do you guys like to hear about from your EMS providers when they get to the hospital?
0: I think you, you hit most of it, right? We talked a little bit last time, too, about um, you know, on-scene giving the patient's family some indication of how critical the situation is. is helpful in the hospital. All of those things about was the cardiac arrest witnessed and first rhythm and all of the interventions that you guys have performed in the field help set us up on the hospital side. Not only are we potentially then gearing up for a double sequential defibrillation, there's more emerging technologies like utilizing ECMO for CPR, beta blockers, and cardiac arrest. These are things that we're still kind of learning about and your information helps us to optimize care for each individual patient.
3: I'll definitely reiterate the part about communicating with family the severity of what's going on. And in my experience, DEMCA providers do an excellent job of that. Generally, when people come in, their family have really a great idea of how severe things are. And, you know, if things go well, that prepares them for what's going to be a difficult emotional time, and can help them to be uh, resources to people who uh, uh, who are resuscitating in the hospital. And unfortunately, if things don't go well, as is often the case in cardiac arrest, it's very helpful in delivering bad news if they already have some idea of, in general, how bad off their relative or friend or loved one is.
2: Right. Well, something didn't go well in the first place to have a cardiac arrest. Right. I mean, we're hopefully a lot of things in medical care are trying to prevent people from having cardiac arrests. So, Ryan, how do you how do you wrap up uh, some of our messages from today's podcast? Yeah.
4: So we're talking about cardiac arrest, but we what we want to drive home is the individualized treatment of the patient. We're not dumping a drug box into a patient. We're not giving medications indiscriminately. We're thinking about the. Uh, type of care the patient needs. We're focusing on the interventions that make a difference, which is high quality CPR and early defibrillation. And
2: I think that's really important. Damon, you want to comment a little bit about our ongoing efforts in the community and how we track the data on every cardiac arrest that occurs?
1: Yeah, we are definitely still going out into the community, trying to teach as many people as we possibly can, hands-alone CPR and how to use an AAD we use a multitude of different things to track CPR or cardiac arrest data. First one is, is the most important is the CARES data because we get data from the time people have called to what EMS did and to what the hospital did and to what, how the patient was discharged and how they're doing after. But then we can utilize and backtrack they did and to really start analyzing specific runs as they come up to see what are we doing good and how can we duplicate these efforts for future patients. Right, it's all about trying to
2: improve patient care. Dr. Brennan, you want to wrap things up for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. As always, thank you so much for all of the incredible work you do in the field for the citizens that we we serve. Um, we love to see you know good outcomes from cardiac arrest. We hope we've given you guys some food for thought about why it is that we do what we do, why you know the protocols and medications have changed over time, supported by the the literature and the evidence. We hope we've given you guys a starting place to continue to build your build your practice, and ask good questions. We are available in your local ER at any point. Obviously, again, this is a, a topic we're, we're passionate about. We would be happy to ask, answer any more of your questions. Just find one of us in the ER, and uh, we'll probably end up talking your your ear off. But thank you so much for being out there, for doing what you do, and thanks so much for making it through the end of the podcast with us here.
2: All right. Thanks, everybody.
0: This podcast has been produced by Aaron Brennan and engineered by Rob Dunn. Music is original by Dr. Matt Ball. We are recorded at Macrobiotic Music and would like to thank Demka Executive Director, Mr. Damon Gorlick.